0: I think I just gave up the organ for Lent. <laughs> That's awesome. Uh, well, tra- traditionally, the followers of Jesus have used the 40 days prior to Easter to meditate on the cross, cross of Jesus Christ. What does the cross have to teach us? Or if you frame the question the way St. John the Evangelist might frame the question, what light does the cross shed? Remember for John, Jesus is the light of the world. And that light is brightest in his hour, as Jesus refers to it in the Gospel of John, when the night is darkest, when he hangs on a cross. This Lent, I'm really looking forward to this, we're going to walk through St. John's Passion together. We're going to look at the whole thing. You find it in John chapter 18 and 19, gives us an opportunity to reflect on the cross. We're actually going to be looking at the six characters that John introduces to us in St. John's Passion. We'll look at each week a different character, and we'll see what light the cross shines on their lives and on ours as well. So the story of John's passion begins with Judas Iscariot. You've heard the name before. Uh, He's the first of the six characters. Let's uh, open up a Bible and turn to John chapter 18, verses 1 through 6. If you're looking at the Pew Bible, you'll find that on page 880. John 18, verses 1 through 6. And if you're able, would you stand with me? Let's all read aloud together this beautiful text of Scripture as an act of worship. And when we're done reading, I'll say, this is the word of the Lord, So that if you believe it you can say thanks be to God. Listen carefully, you're reading God's holy word. After Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the Kidron Valley to a place where there was a garden which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas who betrayed him also knew the place because Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas brought a detachment of soldiers together with police from the chief priests and the Pharisees, and they came there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that was to happen to him, came forward and asked them, whom are you looking for? They answered, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus replied, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said that... I am he, they stepped back and fell to the ground. This is the word of the Lord. Heaven and earth will pass away, but what you just read never will. Please be seated. You know, there were two disciples named Judas. That's why there's always a qualifier, Judas who betrayed him. Judas is a tragic figure, but I have to say, I relate to him. Do you know which one is Judas in the sculpture behind me? Look all the way to the end on the right and you see a man there turning half towards Jesus and half away. A man who has his left hand on a bag of money because uh, Judas was the treasurer of the bunch. He has his right hand on his heart as if to feel what's there. What do I want here? at this table, he seems to be asking himself. And of course, notice his head is bowed. He's the only face that is shrouded by darkness. Interesting the way the sculptor did that here. See how the light falls on Judas's face. He's in the darkness. Judas is a tragic figure. Judas didn't really know what he wanted. Well, actually, worse than that, it might be that Judas did know what he wanted, when he got what he wanted he found out it wasn't really what he wanted and it was devastating it was devastating so i say to you i i i relate to judas iscariot the betrayer of jesus i I feel for my heart and i ask myself why is it that i don't really know what i want or worse Why is it that when I do know what I want and I get what I want, I find out I didn't really want it? And that's devastating. I mean, I want the whole bag of potato chips, right? Right now. But I also want a healthy heart. I want to live a simple life. But I also want a sailboat with a luxury cabin. I do. I want to be my own unique, unrepeatable self. But I also want the approval of others. I want you to like me so desperately. I want to be the person you want me to be. And I want a life that counts for something greater than myself. But I also want that life and everything else to revolve around moi. That's French for me. Oh, and I want Jesus, right? But the Jesus I want is kind of my own, air quotes, Jesus. I want the Jesus who says and does just what I want. I worry that I'm too much like Judas Iscariot. This is why it's so important that we wrestle with the question that Jesus puts to Judas. Did did you notice what he asks Judas? It's clarifying. What are you looking for? It's there in verse 4. Whom are you looking for? It would be translated either way. It would be the same words in Greek. What are you looking for? Who are you looking for? Now, on one level, that's a simple question. It's easy to answer, right? Jesus, we're looking for you. That's why we've got the weapons, right? Remember, Judas could solve for the religious authorities the one problem they couldn't figure out how to solve, which is how to arrest Jesus without provoking his followers to riot. And apparently Judas knows that from time to time when Jesus was in Jerusalem, he would go across the Kidron Valley to a little walled garden that was probably owned by a wealthy person. And Jesus seemed to use it as a kind of a green room, you know, to powder up and relax between acts in Jerusalem. And so Judas anticipating that Jesus would do this, this Passover festival, he's able to predictably bring the Roman soldiers and temple police right to that garden at the right moment and there is Jesus. Who are you looking for? We're looking for you. It's an easy question to answer on the the surface but there's another level below the surface. This is what you have to know with John. John's deceiving because it looked like the simplest of gospels when you read it. But he's the most sophisticated of all the gospel writers and it's very intriguing. He's quite an artist. There's always a level beneath the level. And on the, the level beneath the surface, this is a, a penetrating question. Because remember, Jesus in John's gospel is the light of the world. Now, what his readers know is that every Passover comes with a full moon. A great heavenly light hangs above the scene. Full moon, every Passover. And so he's counting on you to be aware of that so that when he tells you that these people coming with Judas are carrying lanterns and torches, there is great irony. John doesn't want you to miss the irony of that. They're coming to arrest the light of the world with little, puny little torches, substitutes, false light. So John is sort of winking at us. He's saying to you, I want you to put this question that Jesus asks in the wider context of the whole gospel. I want you to put this question that Jesus asks in the personal context of your life, dear readers. What are you looking for? Whom are you looking for? What is it that you really want? Jesus asks this question five times in the gospel of John. It's actually the first thing that Jesus ever says in the Gospel of John. These are his first, the word becomes flesh, and then these are his words. What are you looking for? He asks it of his, the first group that are going to become his, his disciples. It's the first thing that Jesus says after he's risen from the dead. Who are you looking for? What are you looking for? Exact words, same question. It's what he's getting at with the woman who's had five husbands at the well. What are you looking for? It's what he's getting at for the man who's been sick for 38 years. Do you want to be made well? What are you looking for? It's the question that hangs implicitly in the air when he says, for those who are hungry, I'm the bread of life. It's the question hanging when he says, for those who are thirsty, let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. It's hanging over the air of those who are grieving when he says, I am the resurrection and the life. It's there for Peter after he's denied Jesus three times. Do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? What are you looking for? Who are you looking for? And the question in the Garden of Gethsemane is really, which light are you going to live by? That light that comes from heaven or this little puny light that you've lit yourself that you're carrying in your hand? Where will you find your deepest satisfaction? In me, or in something, or in anything else? John Donne is an English poet, and he wrote a great poem called Batter My Heart. I love this poem. I'm so happy to be able to share it with you. It feels like the right poem for this series and for Lent. John Donne lived in England in the early 1600s, and he wrote a collection of poems that are now called Holy Sonnets. This one is Holy Sonnet 14. Um, You can Google it, I hope you will. Batter My Heart, it's also called. And I'm gonna just read the first quartet to you today, you'll have to find the rest later. He says this, it's a prayer really, it's kind of a Lenten prayer. He says, batter my heart, three-personed God. For you as yet, but knock, breathe, shine. And seek to mend that I may rise and stand or throw me. Bend your force to break, blow, burn and make me new. Wow, would you be willing to pray that prayer? What's he saying? Batter my heart. My heart's untrue. It doesn't want what I want it to want. I want to want you, but I can't, as long as you're gentle, just breathing and shining. My heart's like a a door that's closed and locked. I I need you to come with force. Really batter it. Really break it down. Please, come in. As you read the poem, he uses other images like a conquered town who has to pay tribute to the wrong king, or a spouse who's bound by marriage to the wrong lover. Go look up Holy Sonnet 14 read it. It, it. These are the words of somebody who knows what it's like to struggle against their desires. To struggle to want what they really want. It, it, it shows us that, that the heart can be unresponsive, captive, bound. That our desires may actually be untrue, misdirected. And where does, where does John Donne get this idea from? Maybe from Judas, but I think he gets it from the cross, by looking at the cross of Jesus. Which brings us to our Lenten question. What does the cross of Jesus Christ teach us about ourselves? Think about that for a second. What do we learn about ourselves when we look at the cross of Jesus? Well, as you know, and John teaches us, it's God's ultimate act of salvation. It's a beautiful thing, right? John 3.16, you know that, right? For God so loved the world, He sent His one and only Son for salvation. But, but why did He use the cross for salvation? Why, why is that the instrument? I, I mean, it, it, why the meat grinder of a Roman execution? How, how does that bring salvation to anything, let alone the, the whole world that God loves? It's kind of interesting to ponder that, that's what the that's, that's season is about. What does the nature of God's solution tell us about the nature of our predicament? What does his help tell us about our trouble? This is what I'm getting at. If the solution were a life ring, you'd say the danger was water. If the solution were a parachute, you'd say the danger was height. If the solution is an antibiotic, you'd say the danger is bacteria. So what does it mean when we come to God's solution And we look up at the cross and see God's only begotten pre-existent son, and we see a human being, someone like me, someone like you. I mean, doesn't it suggest that we're the danger, that we're the danger to ourselves and to creation? It's the likes of us who nailed him there in anger, and it's the likeness of us who hangs there in love. Our predicament is us. Sin has in some way that I don't quite understand ruined us. And that's why I don't want the God who wants me. If God is going to break into my life, He's going to have to batter my heart, He's going to have to overcome us. And this is the theme of John. If I were to write a book on John, I spent a lot of time with John, I would call it the spirituality of unbelief, because I think John is trying to portray a spirituality of unbelief in this gospel. Let me just give you one example of that. Turn to John 3.16. Go back to your Bibles, if you you would, and look at John 3.16, which is on page 864 of the Pew Bible, and let's read the very next Verses after that familiar one that's, you know, at the football games and everything. Let's, does anybody know what comes next? Listen to what Jesus says, verse 17. Indeed, God did not send the Son into the world to condemn the world. Okay, that's good. But in order that the world might be saved through him. Got it. Those who believe in him are not condemned. That's the invitation. Okay. But those who do not believe are condemned already. That's the warning, Judas, because they have not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Now, listen to this this is the judgment. It's this simple, that the light has come into the world and people loved darkness rather than light. People love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. For all who do evil hate the light and do not come to the light so that their deeds may not be exposed. What's he saying about our hearts? He's saying, it's an analogy, isn't it? Light. So sometimes we're drawn to light like, um, there's a distant light, a, a lantern, maybe in a window, and it shows us the way. Or we're carrying a lamp to illuminate our path. We're drawn to that light. But then also, sometimes, we are repelled by light. Sometimes we want it. Sometimes we don't want it. Like, you come out of a matinee, and this midday sun. It's just searing your eyes, and you immediately close them, or want to go back in, right? Or there's a flash of lightning, and you run for cover there's a kind of light that's just so bright and jesus is saying that's what he is he's that kind of a light and when he comes into the world we don't want him we prefer the darkness we learn this from the cross the cross exposes us it reveals us it repels us oh better my heart three person god what do we do now Let's just step back for a second. I I want you to see that there are two very different messages about our affections here. There's the message of the culture, and there's the message of the cross. You know the message of the culture very well. The culture tells you, follow your desires. But the cross tells you, question your desires. Right? Follow your desires or question your desires. These are two very different messages. I don't know if you watch the Super Bowl, uh, I, I love the ads, and they're so creative. My favorite Super Bowl ad this past year was the Adam Driver Squarespace ad. Do you, Anybody remember that? You know Adam Driver? He's, he's standing there like in a black suit and sunglasses in this kind of sort of space odyssey matrix kind of world, and it's just Adam Driver all by himself. And then Squarespace, we're told, is this website that makes websites. And that intrigues him with sort of this deep thought on his face, websites making websites, making websites, making websites, making websites. websites. And then there's this multiplication all of a sudden of Adam Driver. As far as the eye can see, we see now Adam Driver, little Adam Drivers, right? And so he's just multiplied all over the place. And then he says, it's, it's, he says, you did it, Adam Driver. Um, and so the question is, uh, "What did what, right? This hangs over the ad. They don't tell you. But what did Adam Driver do, if you saw that ad? He created himself. He multiplied himself. He expressed himself. He became the center of his own universe. And I want to tell you, that is what the culture tells us we all have to do. The message of the culture is follow your desire, listen to your heart. We ask, so what do you want to do? What do your desires tell you about who you are? And then you have this moral imperative to follow those desires to become that person. Your desires shape your life, the culture tells us. See, what Adam Driver did is Adam Driver became Adam Driver in every possible universe. You did it, Adam Driver. Before the Super Bowl, this ad agency put out a press release, and I love what Adam Driver said. There's a quote from him in the press release. He says, I couldn't be happier to do this commercial with Squarespace and for the Super Bowl. The cast alone was reason to do this. (laughs) (laughs) And I love the tongue-in-cheek nature of the whole thing, because I just wonder... If the culture itself is beginning to realize that this is a dead end, this incessant need to pursue our desires wherever they lead, it's actually exhausting. The modern self is extremely fragile right now. It's extremely unstable. We have unprecedented levels of anxiety and depression. People of all ages are struggling to find motivation to do anything let alone to find contentment. And do you think that's because we're not getting what we want in America? Or is it possible, maybe just possible, that it's because we are getting what we want, only to find it's not what we really want. And it's devastating. Being the center of our own universe is exhausting. Probing inward constantly to discover what will make me ultimately happy is immobilizing. Cutting myself off from any sense of transcendence and making desire itself the moral center of my own life. I mean, trying to find or create anything that could bear the weight of my life and in any meaningful way satisfy it? Who could do that? Just so that someday I could say, you did it, George Hidman. That's the message of the culture. Follow your desires. But the message of the cross, I mean, in a totally unexpected jujitsu kind of way, it's life-giving. It says, question your desires. Question them. Yes, we agree with the culture. Our lives are shaped by our desires. The scriptures teach it. You become what you love. But the cross tells us that there's something fundamentally wrong with our desires, that we love the wrong thing. We can hear it in the voice of the Lord speaking through Psalm 4 to ancient Israel. How long, the Lord says, will you love what is worthless and aim at deception? That's Psalm 4 too. Or in Jeremiah 2, the Lord says, what wrong did your ancestors find in me that they went far from me and went after worthless things and became worthless themselves? My people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living water, and dug out cisterns for themselves, cracked cisterns that can hold no water. And so Jeremiah will later conclude the heart is deceitful, he says. It's deceitful, above all things, and desperately sick. Who can understand it, let alone who can heal it? That's Jeremiah 17 9. And John the evangelist seems to agree with what Jeremiah says when he's speaking of Jesus with no small amount of realism. John says, no one needed to tell Jesus about human nature. This is John 2 25. For Jesus knew what was in each person's heart. And so St. Augustine four centuries later will define sin this way. Sin, according to Augustine, the essence of it is disordered love. I I like that, two words, disordered love. What he means by that is you and I have a chronic, incurable tendency to love lesser things more than we love greater things. And to love greater things less than we love lesser things. We have disordered love. So so don't follow your heart, it's disordered, see? Don't follow your heart, it might be deceitful. This is what the Bible says, question your heart. The cross says crucify your heart. The, The Bible, Jesus promises a new heart to us. I mean, I know this is hard stuff, but just think about this, this lamp. I mean, what if? What if our desires are disordered? What if they don't reliably tell us who we are? What if they don't tell us what is good? Who are you looking for? What are you looking for? What is it you really want? I can remember years ago, talking to a brilliant graduate student about Jesus, trying to share with her, good news and she looked concerned and she said i i know i'm supposed to love god but you know what i don't love god how can i love god and she was speaking out of some deep pain in her own life and some deep skepticism She was very smart and i said to her what i think you would say to her and 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 i said this i said well forget about loving god just for a moment just forget about that i want you to focus on how god loves you how god loves you and that changed everything. She ended up saying yes to Jesus, and it's uh, so wonderful to see transformation in her life. This brings us to our final question, which is what does the cross of Jesus Christ tell us about our Savior, not about ourselves, but about our Savior? What's well, this, that He is light that even the darkness in us cannot overcome. He's that kind of light. His love is stronger than death, than our death. He, he, he is extraordinary love for our disordered loves. He has overcome what otherwise overcomes us. He holds even the ungodly, the Apostle Paul says, in his grace. This is good news. This is good news. And you notice in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus answers his own question, which is what Jesus so often does. This is what revelation means, as opposed to our pondering. It's Jesus' revelation. Let me tell you who I am. So who are you looking for? He asks. Jesus of Nazareth, they say. And then he tells them who it is that he is, the one they're looking for. And he says, I am he. Now, and you know, in the Greek, it's just two words, I am, which is an echo of the Hebrew, I am. And they all fall like dominoes. Why? Because this is the light of God revealed first to Moses in the burning bush. This is the light of God who overcame the hardness of Pharaoh's heart. This is the light of God that overcame the hearts of his people who though he led them in love through the wilderness wanted to return to slavery in Egypt. This is I am. This as John Dunn would say is the one overthrowing them, these soldiers, that they may rise and stand in his love. What we'll learn about St. John's passion is that as opposed to all the other passions in the four Gospels, this one is focused on the Passover. Jesus is the light of the burning bush. Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Jesus is the firstborn son who dies to give us life. The Passover cuts all the way through this passion. So what does the cross of Jesus Christ teach us about our Savior? You and I have a Savior who would rather not exist than have to exist in a universe without you and without me. This is good news. This God overthrows himself to embrace us in his love. He loves you so much. God loves you this much. God so loved the world he gave his only son. That's what the cross teaches us. And you know, and this is just my personal opinion, I think anyone could have done what Judas did that night. As John tells us, they're all at the same table. Like, see them there. And in John's Gospel, Jesus asks this question while they're there, John 13. He he said, not a question, he makes a statement, which becomes a question. Very truly, I tell you, one of you will betray me. And you know what happens? What doesn't happen is they go, oh yeah, that's, that's Judas. They don't all look at Judas. They look at one another. They look at themselves, is it I? They have to ask that question. I mean, that's interesting, isn't it? They don't suspect Judas. In fact, you know, I don't know how you run your business, but I think Jesus is at least as smart as you and I are. You would never give the, the money bag to the, a suspicious person. Probably Judas was like the most trustworthy guy in the whole group, right? No way has he given it to Matthew. Uh, But Judas, right? So they're they're not thinking Judas is the bad guy here. They're going, I wonder if I'm the guy. In in other words, we all have betrayal hearts. We all have the capacity to do it. They're not even sure. Am I the guy? Am I about to do this? (laughs) Really? Because they know they could. Like I know I could. I'm so grateful that Judas is in the story just for this reason. What, What it means that God put Judas in the story so that we can wrestle with the fact that Jesus is not betrayed by his enemies, or by outsiders, or by the bad guys. He's betrayed by his friends, the insiders, the good guys, us, could be any of us. Alexander Solzhenitsyn, the Russian dissident, says the line between good and evil goes through every single human heart. We all have betrayer hearts. We betray ourselves, we betray Jesus, and yet God liberates us at the cross. That's what he does. This is the good news. Jesus knows this. Verse 4, says he knows all things. And he invites us to this table through the cross. He invites us to sit here. That's why there's room at the table for you and me to join. And that's the invitation for us. I'm going to invite the band to to come up and invite you if you want to bow your head with me and, and just... You might just imagine the cross right in front of your eyes. Let's come to the cross. Don't let let's not let our disordered lives keep us from the one who loves us most. Come, brothers and sisters, to the cross of Jesus. There are no false pretenses at the cross of Jesus. We just have truth. He knows what we want and what we shouldn't want. He knows. He knows our favorite lanterns and torches, he knows all the substitutes that we ignite in our heart substitutes for his great love he knows that we look in the wrong places and we look for the wrong things he knows our deeds are evil and that we hide from his life he knows all that but he loves us and invites us to trust in his grace there's a place at this table for you and for me yes the light exposes us but it also draws us as Peter says Lord to whom can we go You have the words of eternal life. Isn't it remarkable that we're part of this story? That he continues to bother with me or someone like me. And yet we are, and yet he does. So let's come to him. Not because we've got it all together or we know or want what's best, but because he wants us just the way we are. Let's come to Jesus the only way we can through the cross. Come and unload your burdens here at the cross. Come and unload your substitutes. Come and unload your pretenses. Come and unload what you would otherwise have to hide, pretending you're someone you were never meant to be. Come and find true security for your heart and life and rest in God's grace. If you're ready to say yes to the words of eternal life in Jesus, then After the service, I'm going to invite you to come up front, speak to our prayer team, or come to upc.org slash Jesus and click yes. And over these next 40 days, we're journeying together towards the cross. I want to to suggest to you a Lenten practice. I want to suggest that you wrestle with Jesus' question. You might write it down and put it someplace prominent. What are you looking for? Wrestle with that. What am I looking for? What do I really want? Look at your life as you ask that question. What does your life tell you about your wants, your calendar, your money, what you're willing to w- work for, or what you're willing to suffer for, what you feel you need to hide, or where you pretend, your secrets. What am I looking for? And by the way, there's a practice that comes with this, a traditional practice called fasting. Fasting is something we do to learn how to say no to our wants so that they don't rule our lives. It's not about denial, it's about fulfillment. We learn to say no to ourselves so we can say yes to the Lord, to what he wants for us. So I want to encourage you to pick one thing to give up for 40 days. Something you'll miss. It doesn't have to be a vice, it could be anything. It could be ballpoint pens or your toothbrush. But give up something. And then when you miss that thing, ask the Judas question. What are you looking for? Who are you looking for? Let's pray. Batter our hearts. Batter our hearts, three-person God. Father, Son and Spirit. The scriptures tells us, in your presence there is fullness of joy in your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Father, Son and Holy Spirit, joyful circle of love from all eternity wanting one another, receiving, giving and receiving. You're not trying to deprive us. You're trying to resource us. You're trying to pull us in and answer the prayer that Jesus prayed in the very previous chapter. Father, as I am in them and you and you are in me, may they be in us. So we pray for the answer to that question prayer that you would pull us deep into your arms through the cross. Take us into the joyful circle of your loving embrace. Pull us to the table. Pull us to your arms. We want nothing more. And here we could want nothing else. In Jesus' name.